It's time for a WeChat workout. WeChat. Go to the Cliff Central account. Tab connect. Then message to show. Evolution. A very hearty welcome to Looking Up with Professor David Block. Today we're going to be having an awesome time. I'll tell you the subject in a moment. But we're going to be looking up into all the wonders and glory of the uh, universe which uh, surrounds us. But first, before I give the uh, actual topic details, if you want to reach us, why not... Twitter us at uh, the handle at cliffcentral.com, Facebook Cliff Central, WeChat ID uh, is uh, Cliff Central, and uh, to send a message on WeChat, you can just tap connect, then MSG to show, message to show. This is Professor David Block. And I have the singular honor and privilege today with Duncan next to me to be looking at part two, as Dory would have put up on the tweets, part two of uh, Hubble at 25. That doesn't mean that uh, uh, Hubble is 25 years old, but rather <laughs> uh, this, these are the, um, you know, the uh, top 25 images uh, taken uh, by the uh, Hubble Space Telescope. So I have in front of me the April edition of National Geographic, and uh, it says Hubble at 25, the Space Telescope's imaging scientist picks his top celestial views. So we're going to be looking at these top celestial views. We did look at about four or five of them, but Duncan and I got so immersed in the beauty of all these images and in the grandeur of all these images that uh, we just lost track of time, as it were. We got lost in track of time and of space. So today we'll be having a look at some of the remaining uh, top uh, 25 images of the Hubble taken through the Hubble Space Telescope. So first of all, I want to ask Duncan about this. It's called a galactic waltz. What does this look like to you, Duncan? I mean, to the person, the reader, say, National Geographic, um, without any specific training in this area, what does it look like? Does it look like more art? Does it look like more painting? Does it look like science? Does it look like photography? Does it look like Photoshop? What 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 sort of do, what what domains does it remind you of, Duncan? Uh, you're referring to picture number eight, right, yes. Professor? Picture uh, number eight on the top twenty-five list. Yes, uh, titled "The Galactic Waltz." Absolutely. Hmm. Uh, this to me just looks like a, a big mystery, Professor. It's like ah, uh, oh, that's beautiful. A big mystery. It, it looks like a mystery. I, I don't know. It's unimaginable. I can't put words <laughs> to this. Like it's unthinkable to a. Uh, Simple man like me, what yes. this would actually depict. Yes. Mm. Well, that's just so awesome. I think that, uh, you know, uh, Duncan has wrapped it up in one word starting with the letter M. M for mystery. So 
If we look at uh, the Galactic Walls, image number eight, the National Geographic um, top 25 list, well, what do I see? My trained eye sees that there are two galaxies dancing around each other, hence the title Galactic Walls. There's one galaxy at the top and the other at the bottom, and they're actually twirling around. But you can also see a tremendous amount of fuzzy blue stuff all over the photograph. Now, that's incredible. One has to be a professor of stellar obstetrics and gynecology to understand this properly, uh, which I am. And so these are actually the birth of stars, Duncan. All of these little blue dots that you see are, are stars being born. What's happened is the following. One galaxy is going around the other one and returning around the other one. And uh, gas has been spewed out into space. It's very strange long features over here. Mm. Gas has been spewn out into space. But not only has gas been strewn out and spewn out into space, but new baby stars have been born as a result of all the shocks as these... Uh, as this uh, waltz in space, this galactic waltz, is taking place. And so you can see, I mean, my eye picks up myriads of what we call dust lanes, which are those lanes over there, myriads of blue stuff, which is hot, young, blue stars, myriads of um, older stars. The galaxy at the bottom is simply phenomenal. You've got a lot of uh, blue stuff again, delineating the birth of stars, a lot of old stuff. But now, looking at it, at it not only with my scientific brain, but with my artistic eye, it almost, in a sense, looks like a Michelangelo which could not have been painted at the time. Of uh, Michelangelo. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Duncan? In other words, more the art uh, aspect uh, of it. Look, uh, for an artist to paint something like this, he would have uh, have to had inspiration from somewhere else. Yes, you know. But uh, I don't think anyone on Earth would have imagined to paint something like this because uh, they'd never seen it ever before. Right. But before we move along, Professor, oh. I want to find out where does the energy come from to create okay. such things? So that's a very, very interesting question. Of course, where does the energy come from? Well, you've got two galaxies in orbit around one another. Because they're orbiting one another, they possess uh, several kinds of energy, such as kinetic energy. Now, if you're in a car, the car has a certain amount of kinetic energy. For example, the kinetic energy of a passenger in a car, if you've got a car, the kinetic energy is measured by a very simple formula in general, a half mv squared. So that's a half mass times the velocity squared. So if a body is in motion, it possesses, in a straight line for example, it possesses energy which we call kinetic energy. Then there's other kinds of energy because these galaxies are waltzing in space. So there's potential energy. Just like for example, if one Duncan sends a rocket off to the moon, it possesses different types of energy, lots of different types of energy, potential energy, um, kinetic, kinetic energy, and so on. And so by virtue of their motion and uh, by virtue of their um, position, 
they possess these kinds of energies. And so it's those energies which help perpetuate the drama uh, before us of the um, – of the images we see is that, the, you know, it's like, for example, you're not simply Duncan placing, for example, a dancer on a dance floor. You're placing them with a lot of energy already. And so because they have this extraordinary amount of energy, they can waltz around, they can tumble around. But the interesting thing is that as these little guys are tumbling around, babies are being born. <laughs> so uh, baby stars. So that's why I like the way National Geographic speaks about it as a galactic waltz. But again, uh, Duncan, just looking at it as a, from a more um, artistic perspective, there is an incredible story behind this, isn't there? Um, there's a story of intrigue. There's a story of vastness. There's a story of how did it happen? Looks like war to me, Professor. With red, <laughs> all the red colors looks like blood. Well, that's just lovely. I think that's just neat. It looks like war. In a sense, it is. I mean, in a very real sense, it's a galactic waltz, but it's also galactic cannibalism. In other words, the yeah. one galaxy can swallow up the other galaxy. And I suppose that would demarcate perhaps the death of that galaxy. So um, in a very real sense, I suppose it's a cosmics or Star Wars in all the Definitely. grandeur and splendor. But there's also, to me, you know, Duncan, when I look at these on the screen or National Geographic, there's just a sense of why am I so worried about me on planet Earth? when there's all this beauty to behold in the night sky. And that's something which I've been privileged to tell others for many years, is that uh, we look down too much, Duncan. I mean, for example, if I woke up in the morning and I had this on my uh, bedroom door and I looked at it, I mean, I do look at these in my mind because they're stored in my mind. But if you... Were to wake up and look at something like this, uh, wouldn't it cause you perhaps to sort of want to scratch, want to scratch the cutting edge, mm. want to solve new mysteries, want to dream new dreams, want to scale <laughs> new mountains, want to go to the Mount Everest and so forth? I think w when I wake up, Professor, and I saw a picture like that, I, I wouldn't know what to do with myself. <laughs> Just being a, a mere mortal, knowing yes. that there's all that greatness out yes. there. Yes, yes. Well, I think that's just uh, so awesome. And uh, let's remember the Hubble Space Telescope was launched on April 24, 1990. So, um, in fact, as we are saying, it's Hubble at 25. Um, it was launched on April the 24th, 1990, which... Um, is uh, uh, 25 years ago, but I think it's just so awesome to uh, contemplate what Duncan is saying is that, uh, one, it's hard to believe that uh, such grandeur and splendor exists in the night sky above. Now, to all our listeners, our jewels out there, why don't you just Google Hubble at 25 and tell me which is your favorite image. Or ask me. Just say, Prof. David, please tell me 
uh, what I am seeing in image number dot dot dot, and I'll be more than happy and more than honoured to uh, put on my astrophysical hat and my rather my astronomical hat and uh, and uh, elucidate the mysteries for you, remembering that I am a professor of astronomy, a professor of computational and applied maths, not of physics, but of computational and applied mathematics, where the the nitty-gritty of all the math behind this unfolds. It's just awesome. But, of course, you know, when Hubble Space Telescope Duncan was launched into space, and I just see the images in front of me, and I'll be coming to more in a moment, you know, all of this results from dreaming. You know, I suppose that at NASA... One has to reach a stage where, you know, at first one remembers the words of Martin Luther King, I have a dream. And, you know, that dream has to be enacted without people at NASA actually uh, unfolding that dream. These incredible images would never, ever, ever have seen the uh, light of day or of night. And so... I think it's very important, as we've often said, that it is so vital to dream because without dreaming, uh, you know, of launching the Hubble Space Telescope, of putting the Hubble Space Telescope into orbit, uh, none of this would be um, realized, Duncan. Mm. And so to all our listeners, I've asked Duncan, our precious, most precious sound engineer, but also someone who's just so gifted with questions to play the voice of the master. So even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream. That one day, this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. I have a dream. Mm. That one day on the red hills of Georgia, wow. the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be, be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, hmm sweltering with the heat of oppression will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream. Mm. Mm. My four little children yes. will one day live in a nation yes. where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, skin. but by the content of their character. Oh. I have a dream today. Wonderful. You know, every time I listen to this cut, Duncan, it brings tears to my eyes because 
Here is a man speaking at a time when it was not legal for, you know, anyone but white Americans to get onto a bus. Yeah. I remember um, a black American actually having to sit at the back of a bus and then being kicked off. And yet here is the dream. Now with us, uh, you know, at NASA, for example, uh, I have dealt with many visionaries, people who have dreams and visions, and it's wonderful to actually see them dream. I have a very dear friend at Harvard University who's about 80, and he has a dream to see a rocket go into space in about 15 years' time, Duncan. How's that? You're 80 years old, and you're planning for a mission in 15 years. I mean, he said to me, I hope I won't need a walker by that stage. <laughs> he was a visionary professor. <laughs> That's right. And, I mean, here he is, and he would be 95 at that time. But at the age of 80, when most of us perhaps are retiring and sitting in our retirement homes, here he is near 80 and he's living out a dream 15 years ahead, which is going to take him to 19, to, uh, 95. And that's one of the things that I have to pose to you again today, dear precious listeners, is do you dream? You know, many of us, um, don't dream, unfortunately. I have 300 students at WITS every day. I lecture to thousands upon thousands of professor, people. Professor, professor, mm. people maybe don't know how to dream. Well, that's a very interesting point, and that's a very interesting question. And I suppose I'd like to answer that in the following sense is, every, first of all, every dream starts with a f small step. But, for example... I have watched some of the secrets behind um, the Olympian swimmers, swimmers, for example. Now, they had a dream, Duncan, to win the Olympics. How did they have this dream? Because they were simply gifted in their fields. But the point is, when you have a dream, you cannot afford to be lazy. Um, I believe we've got multitude of talent out there. I don't believe, Duncan, and it's a brilliant question, I don't believe it's for lack of dreams that we do not dream. I believe that multitudes of people do dream, but they don't have the commitment or the discipline to see that dream through to Pro any sense of... Professor, yes. I sometimes sleep at night. Good, Am I dreaming? Are those dreams or just my, my mind working over time? Or what is a dream? What dreams are you talking about? Okay. I am talking, and that's very important. When Martin Luther says, I have a dream, he means I have a realistic goal before my eyes. Mm. That's what it is. So it's not that he was, you know, in bed at night. Uh, it can happen that you're in bed at night and then suddenly sit up and say, wow, I'm not going to see people of, um, uh, you know, being allowed onto a bus or not dependent on color. But if you take, for example, Mr. Mandela here in this country, he had a dream, right? He had a very big dream. That dream was not born in a night or by sleeping. It was a very, very realistic dream. So 
By that, I do. It's a very important point. Duncan asked me is that by dreaming, you know, when I say I have a dream, it's not that you know to write a book. It's not that I'm going to go to bed and hope I'll dream of you know something special. It's it's a it's a goal. I have a dream. A wish. That's right. But it's almost stronger than a wish. I am determined to reach. A target. Mm. For example, if you are playing those darts, the game of darts, yeah, and you've yeah. got bull's eye, you have a goal in mind. Mm. And you keep on throwing those darts. Some days you'll suck at it and the, the, the darts will go nowhere. And other days the darts will go and they'll hit bull's eye. And that's what Mr. Mandela had, did he not? On, that's why he was sent to Robben Island, was it not? Is that he had a goal. And he was willing to live for that goal, uh, if necessary, 20 years or more on Robben Island. But as we learned from George Bezos, he had a goal. So I'm talking of a realistic goal. I'm not talking about dreaming in the sense of sleep dreaming, but I'm talking of really revelation, goal setting. But, for example, with a Hubble Space Telescope, astronomers had a dream to send a telescope into space. What do I mean they had a dream to send a telescope into space? They had a goal to do so. Not only did they have a wish to send a, a telescope into space, but they had a goal to do so. Then, once you've What got about the, a desire? Ah, I think that's an equally good word, is I have a desire to see my people free, says Martin Luther King. I think that's that's a brilliant word. I have a desire. So, in other words, it takes it away from the um, nebulous dreaming. I have a desire to put a telescope into space. That is so strong. I have a desire because once you have the desire the rest really follows mm. but you need to have the desire to do it and i mean here we're celebrating hubble at 25 launched in 1990 and um it's really remarkable that all of these images which i'm showing you and discussing have come about because Somebody had a desire, to use Duncan's words, not to simply have telescopes on Earth, because everybody used telescopes on Earth. But what happened was astronomers had a desire to send a telescope into space. Why? Because from space, we haven't got any light pollution to worry about. Mm. We haven't got any lights to worry about. We haven't got any pollution, smoke pollution. I remember being in Beijing and I couldn't even see the night sky. I couldn't even see the day sky because it was just so filled with junk and with smoke and with just trash, really. And it, it, I couldn't even see a couple of hundred meters away. And also what I'm saying is these images which Duncan is you know, streaming across to me, and we're going to be discussing this one next, uh, image number nine in the top 25, is that... Uh, we need to live out our desires and the rest follows. So image number nine is really amazing and it's called Star Power. Now, let me just read what a National Geographic has to say 
And uh, I'll tell you more about it myself. So we're looking at an object in the sky called the horse head. And this is an object which is shaped, as you can see, in the form of a horse's head. Here's its neck. Mm. Here's its um, the uh, the top, the uh, head of the uh, the horse. Long nose. The long nose, good. And uh, the the, um, the the that's right, the mane over there. So we are looking at uh, an image. Uh, wherein an image of cosmic dust. Now remember that I am a professor of cosmic dust. Why am I so excited about cosmic dust? Well, the reason is I have a desire to use that word which Duncan used to understand what you and I are made of. You know, when you go to a funeral, they always say from dust to dust. Well, from what dust to what dust? And uh, we are made of the stuff, the dust, cooked in the interiors of stars. Now, Duncan, can you see all this red stuff? That is this cosmic dust I'm talking about, this red stuff over here. But then you've got a lot of bluish stuff lining the horse head, and those are clouds of hydrogen gas which are forming stars, which you can see spread out across the little image. Mm. So... Again, I think that if one didn't have, you know, we say wow, but we have to think of what, you know, how did the wow come about? It came about by having the dream, as Martin Luther King has said, by having the vision, by having the desire. I think this is one of Hubble's certainly most beautiful um, of objects. Well, in National Geographic, I turn a little bit in the, um, in the, um, Chronology of it, and it's, it reads here, Hubble's Greatest Hits. There's a beautiful image which I have in my hands, also on screen, and it's called Cosmic Fireworks. Yeah. And, uh, now I think this is just awesome. Why do I think it's just so awesome? Because you are looking inside the womb of stars. That is incredible. You know, I remember when my beloved wife, Liz, was pregnant with twins. Uh, I couldn't see the twins, Duncan, but using specialized equipment, the gynecologist could show me the twins and how they were lying inside Liz's womb. Now, here, that's why I'm so excited to be a professor of still obstetrics and gynecology. Here, um, we are looking inside a stellar maternity ward. What you can see very clearly is that this is not a two-dimensional image, but rather a three-dimensional mm, image. Absolutely. Can you see that? You can see the cone inside, the womb inside. And so what has happened on the right is one is dazzled by dozens upon dozens, hundreds upon hundreds of these uh, blue stars. And so what's happened there is clouds of gas and of dust have actually formed uh, young blue stars inside uh, the cavity. And uh, it shows you a dynamic process, uh, Duncan, whereby stars are being born as I am talking to you. (laughs) 
And I just think that that is amazing. And, you know, people often say at this point in time when I'm giving public lectures, Prof, what, what about the Bible here? Because the Bible says, and God made the stars. Yes, so, well, uh, that means that God is not making stars any longer because you are saying stars are being born. Well, my answer to that is in the Bible we also read, and God made man. But we know that babies are being born. So you've got to understand it all in context. But I love the National Geographic uh, terminology, cosmic fireworks. I love the description um, on the uh, screen. A young stellar grouping called R136 uh, in 30 uh, inside 30 Doradus, which is a vast turbulent cloud of gas. And of dust. So you can actually see right before you, writhing, swirling, ever, ever churning clouds of cosmic dust over here and cosmic gas. And many of these have led to the birth of, um, uh, new stars. And I love the caption of the article which reads, Pictures from this Hubble Space Telescope have dazzled us for 25 years. Um, Hubble's lead imaging scientist in National Geographic picks his top uh, 10 celestial views. To so, me, to, sorry, Professor. Mm. To me, this image, image number 10, uh, resembles the ultimate battle between good and evil. On the on the right. Wow, that's interesting. Why? Uh, on the right, you have uh, beautiful bright colors. And then yes. on your left, all you see is just like uh, what they depict yes. when they're talking about hell, just yes. like red, blood, and fury. And and then wow. on the right, it just wow. looks like wow. I've never seen it that way, and I think it's a very um, interesting, con- most interesting conceptual way of looking at it. I love having other people tell me what they see because I'm just trained to study these, and so it's just awesome. To, uh, to have someone like Duncan asking these lead questions. Yes, I mean, in a sense, I can understand what you're saying. You're seeing stellar birth on the right. Mm. So you're seeing life. You're seeing stars being born. You're seeing stars having a purpose. Uh, young, hot blue stars flooding the image, uh, on the right. So yes, you're seeing that. Whereas towards the left, um, there are these writhing clouds. Um, which do look very, very red, especially in the image on the screen. And uh, uh, that's a very interesting thought, which I hadn't thought of, but Duncan had, and uh, which the, a poet John Moulton would have loved too, is sort of a war, like in Dante or in John Moulton, a war in a sense between uh, good and bad. I mean, that, I think that's what's so amazing about these images, including image number 10, is that each one has a scientific story to tell. But then, Duncan, each one also has a story to tell in terms of life. And I think that's what I love about these images. They are so exquisite. They are so beautiful. And yet, to me, there's, you know, as we page through them, there's this glory 
Uh, there's this mystery, there's this wonder, there's this unimagined universe. You know, just looking to the right of these baby stars being born, I see tiny little dark swaths. Now, those dark swaths are swaths here of cosmic dust and of cosmic gas, which will collapse in due course. And if I had to live for another thousand years, Duncan and I could have an interview and those would be blue. No, is it? So, in other words, it's a very dynamic process. And remember, we looked at the horse head, which is filled with cosmic dust. Look there. See all that all that dark stuff? That's going to collapse in due course to form this, these young, bright blue stars. So, it's what you're looking at is, again, a three-dimensional image of stars in the making, These images have captured the imagination of the world and, uh, you know, featured right on the cover of National Geographic. And people keep on saying to me, you know, as I walked in, Neil said to me, uh, Prof, what's that? And uh, so I think it's just awesome that, you know, in studio, people are just so excited about what are we actually looking at and that's why I'm so excited, and I hope you will WeChat me and, you know, reach me by Facebook or Twitter. We've discussed galactic waltzing. I mean, just imagine that. We've discussed star power. We've discussed cosmic fireworks today. Folk, if you don't have a dream as a result of that, do me this favor. Go to Bob. <laughs> and apply for a job because you are then dead. Do you agree with me, Duncan? I certainly agree with you, Professor. Yeah, it comes some good, good music. Well, the screens are lighting up. We've got a message, a WeChat from Kimberly. Welcome, dear Kimberly. I'm just so excited that you are with us and enjoying what I'm trying to impart with Duncan today. It's just the glory and splendor of uh, Hubble's, um, you know, a legacy, these uh, images, top 10 images secured when it was, since it was launched. In the year 1990. Now, Kimberly's message reads as follows. Welcome back, Professor. Well, that's a bit of a long story. I'm very, very, thank you so much for welcoming me back. And uh, the reason I was away is a little bit of eye surgery. Dr. Thomas, Dr. Tristan Mann uh, was using a knife on the professor's eye. Because without an eye, Duncan, I cannot see and, you cannot uh, work. And I cannot dream. And I cannot work. 
And so Dr. Mann said to me, Prof, we've got to fix and replace the lens of your eye. And Duncan, I nearly froze. I mean, I think I nearly applied for a job at FBOB too. Because <laughs> I would, you know, eye surgery, I can take surgery even, I think, on my heart. I think. Mm. But, you know, when it comes to the eye and you awake and they're cutting it open and you see the knife coming down. But Dr. Mann was so relaxed and the anesthetist Tessa uh, Benningfeld was so relaxed and I mean these people you know just like I love astronomy Dr. Mann loves operating on the eye so imagine that Duncan somebody walks into your theater and you know just like this is my theater of my operations the Hubble uh, Dr. Mann's theater of his operations is the medical theater and a surgery on the eye I want to tell you that I just have not met any greater eye surgeon than this Dr. Mann I mean he just Enthuses confidence And I'm just seeing so much better Than I could imagine Thank God for him Yes, well, this is right And so welcome back, Professor I'm just so excited, Kimberly To be back Thanks to the incredible hands Of um, Dr. Mann And the anesthetist Tessa um, Thank you for giving us part two uh, Kimberly says Of the top 25 Hubble images of Hubble 25, they are absolutely beyond beautiful. Well, Kimberly, I'm so glad you agree with me that they are indeed beyond the imagination. These are not images, Kimberly, which you and I could have imagined to secure, uh, you know, uh, 5, 10, 15 years ago using telescopes on Earth. These are images filled with a mystery and awe and wonder, a science but also an art. These are images which are beyond beautiful. And it's just such an honor, uh, Kimberly, for me to be here this afternoon at Cliff Central uh, to share, you know, using my hat as an astronomer, as a professor of astronomy, uh, you know, just going through these. And uh, it's very interesting, you know, Duncan, how many people don't know, though, the difference between astronomy and astrology. Let me try. Let me can I try? Okay, you can try. Astronomy, yes, is the study of uh, the planet and the stars. That's just good. That sounds just like a professor speaking. Astrology, yes, is ah, prof. Help me out. <laughs> okay, well, that's just put it in a nutshell. Is that astronom astrology sucks? Uh, <laughs> astrology, for example, says. That if Jupiter and Mars are aligned in a certain way, then you shouldn't do A, B, C, D, or E on this specific day. Or that Duncan should get married. Oh. Duncan shouldn't get married. Or uh, Duncan should play lotto today. Or Duncan shouldn't play lotto today. Now, let me tell you a beautiful example why astrology cannot be true in any degree is I ha I'm the father of twins, yes, and Quinquesi and Ketile, named by President, former President Nelson Mandela. Now, you couldn't hope to meet two boys with completely different desires, two boys with completely different characters, two boys who think completely differently, two jewels who are just are so opposite in almost every single aspect, and yet they are twins born under the same. And the point really is this. 
How can, for example, a ball of gas in Jupiter influence my life? I mean, just think of it. Just is it superstition it. mostly? Well, I believe that. I'll tell you what it is. Is um, it is very interesting to see the mentalist on carte blanche regarding psychics too. Um, it's the powers of suggestion in astrology. So in other words, if you read, for example, your horoscope says, now there's this guy, Duncan, and he's not sure what to do. And it says, you know, today is just the day that Duncan needs to apply for a new job. And, you know, Duncan is obviously a person you read uh, who is looking for change. The stars are aligned in a certain way. Therefore, this is a good day. To change Because you're feeling that way anyway And because there's a sect of the population Feeling that way rather uh, They will read that and say Wow, you know, that's me <laughs> That is me you It's know? a scam it's that, Ah, there we are Astrology is a scam I mean, the, you know, listen I need Duncan to teach me some words sometimes <laughs> Because it just No, that's right, Duncan And, and so, um, yeah First of all, I'm a professor of astronomy, um, a pure science. I'm not a professor of astrophysics. I have nothing to do with physics whatsoever. I am not an astrophysicist. I am trained as a professor of computational and applied mathematics. I'm not a professor of astrology, and I hope... Uh, that that makes sense because I'm not a professor of scams. You're not a schemer. That's right. I'm not a schemer and I'm also not a mentalist in the sense of making suggestions and then having a certain sector of the population read them and believe them. But, you know, there are folk around the world uh, who follow the incredible power of suggestion with regard to astrology. I mean, you know, uh, so there's just so many multitudes of people who read their horoscopes and then a certain percentage would say, well, they are coming true. Well, of course they're coming true. Come on. Because if you read enough scams, you'll start believing them. Uh, there's no scientific basis. Here's my point. There's no scientific basis whatsoever to um, astrology. Uh, uh, okay, so you've got some quotes up there. Uh, did, did they just disappear? The power of suggestion. Let me just see if I agree with this. Um well, that's quite funny, actually. Girls have unique powers. They get wet without water. Well, I wasn't <laughs> quite, <laughs> I wasn't quite thinking of that, Duncan. So you've got the professor off guard something. But uh, here's a green way. I want in green that I, I like here. The power of suggestion and says, whether you think you can or think you can't, you write. Hmm, there you go. Whether you think you can or you think you can't, you're right. So if you think you can and you read a horoscope which affirms that, you're right. If you think you can't and you happen to read a horoscope which says you can't, you're right. So that is the incredible power of suggestion. And uh, it comes up over and over and over again in my field because uh, people get so confused with me being an astronomer and they often then quietly introduce me as a professor of astrology. And it's just so sad to see so many people in the year 2015 still not being able to delineate the difference 
between astrology, which has got no scientific basis, which as Duncan correctly says is a scam, and astronomy, which is the purest of sciences. Welcome to Inappropriate. Well, Inappropriate, you are just one of our just most frequent uh, listeners and commenters. It's just it's just awesome to have Kimberly and yourself on board WeChat today. I so much appreciate all these comments. Uh, inappropriate says, and I've often said this, Duncan, inappropriate actually says very appropriate comments, makes very appropriate statements, but his name is inappropriate. So maybe uh, there's a reason for that which inappropriate can tell me. But, Prof, these pictures, um, Prof, these pictures, what does it say, Duncan? These, Prof, these pictures... Are majestic, I think. Oh, are majestic. Okay, mm. because this is a majestic. Are majestic. I thought Dr. Mann has to work on my eye again, <laughs> but it looks as if we're okay, Dr. Mann. Um, one can't hip, I suppose, help but believe that there's some creator out there who's an artist. Oh, wow. Well, I, I just want to stop there for a moment and I just agree with that statement. One can't help to believe that there's some creator out there who's an artist. I mean, Duncan, when you look at these images, aren't they? I mean, I've asked you this a few times now, but if you look, for example, at the Galactic Walls, image number eight, or if you look at Star Power, image number nine, aren't these works really of art? Yes, they are works of science, but they are indeed uh, grand works of art. What are your thoughts? I mean, look at that incredible one, Stefan's Quintet, which I'm just looking at over there. That's a real work of art. I mean, that's art at work beyond the capabilities of um, any Michelangelo. What are your thoughts on that, Duncan? Now, we're talking about Stefan's Quintet. You can Google that. That's S-T-E-P-H-A-N, Stefan's, and then Quintet. Q-U-I-N-T-E-T. So, inappropriate says, wow, there must be some creator out there who, um, you know, can't but believe that there's some creator out there who is an artist. But why so many stars out there? Is there a star for each one of us out there? Well, that's, of course, an interesting question. Why are there many, so many stars out there? Well, in our galaxy, there are around 100,000 million stars. If you had to count one star per second, it would take 2,500 years. But this is just part, you know, I can't tell you why there's so many corals under the sea. I can't. I go, you know, for example, my kids might go diving at the Great Barrier Reef. Uh, I'm not always that brave, Duncan, to go diving. I don't have the cosmic frame for scuba diving. <laughs> but the point is, I can't answer a question like that. Why are there so many corals? Or if you go mountain climbing, why are there so many beautiful f flowers in the middle of nowhere? I just believe that if you've got an artist, for example, and they love to create, then it's quite natural to find their works everywhere. Mm. And so, you know, if you've got an artist... And they're creating, you know, loving, loving, adoring to create. Then they'll just keep on creating because that's part of their character. And that's part of the character of God is that he's an artist who just loves creating. But I just, I concur so much with your statement, uh, inappropriate, that uh, there are just so many stars uh, out there. 
And uh, could there be a star out there for you specifically, Professor? Well, you know that 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 I wouldn't say is true. I'll tell you why. Metaphorically, because, though. Well, metaphorically, yes. I mean, metaphorically, there are enough stars to to help out each one of us. Absolutely. I mean, as far as number counts go, if you want to have a star out there, you know what I mean. Uh, there's enough stars out there. Uh, I mean, the universe is billions of light years in extent, around 14,000 million light years in extent. So, you know, as far as um, uh, having a little piece of space is concerned, you know, and a star, that's absolutely possible. But, uh, again, I would not want to get into astrological claims regarding that. Welcome also to Brad, a frequent listener, um, and it's just awesome today, Kimberly, inappropriate and Brad. And, and um, so Brad says astrology uses the Barnum effect where the phase can apply to almost anyone where the phrase can apply to almost anyone, I would say, Brad, that astrology doesn't have any scientific basis whatsoever. Um, for example, the gravitational pull of the lineup of the planets. I mean, when the planets line up, astrologers tell me, you know, there'll be major events on the planet Earth. Uh, they don't occur, and they don't occur for a reason, because the gravitational force fields under the formula F equals G M1, M2, multiplied by R to the minus 2, is not strong enough to um, have any influence whatsoever on the Earth. So I I am of the opinion, as a professor of applied maths who studies this meticulously every day, that uh, astrology doesn't have a mathematical basis. Astronomy, uh, astrology doesn't have a scientific basis. But if you want to believe it, it'll be right for you. Uh, and I think that was what we said with the power of suggestion is if you think you can, you're right. If you think you can't, you're right. And um, you'll always find people in those camps. And I am saying I do happen to know by means of training, spanning more than 11 years. Remember, I joined WITS in 1984. So I've been wearing my hat, uh, I've been wearing my hat, Duncan, for a great number of years now. And if this prof doesn't know the difference between astrology and astronomy, <laughs> I guess then I never will. But anyway, Brad, it's just awesome having you on board. Well, you can see we're almost running out of time again. So in the last four minutes, we're before playing out with Enya, uh, uh, Duncan has asked that I discuss image number three in National Geographic. Looks like a flying saucer to me. And it does look like a flying saucer indeed. And National Geographic has the title, Hats Off. Now, if you read the commentary, and I just want to check that they're right, although National Geographic has got very good writers, uh, they speak of the image of the spiral galaxy known as the Sombrero Galaxy. Well, it's actually the Sombrero Hat Galaxy, and it's quite clever, though. It's the way they then say, Hats Off. Um, but uh, the Sombrero... Galaxy, light from these stars, uh, listeners, has taken, you know, some 60 million years to reach our eyes. So the light has been traveling in space for 60 million years. So think of this. Long before you were born, long before you were born, unless you happen to be 60 million 
years old. But uh, if you are, you know, younger than 60 million years old, then uh, clearly uh, you were born after the Andromeda galaxy was born. And the light from this galaxy, now remember that light travels at 300,000 kilometers every second. That's the speed of light in vacuum. 300,000 kilometers every second has taken 60 million years to reach our eyes. Why does it look like a hat? Well, we're looking at a a pancake-shaped spiral galaxy. You've got the upper portion, which looks like a hat. And then you've got the lower portion. It's actually not a hat. You can see that there's a beautiful a spheroidal structure to the galaxy. Can you see that, Duncan, yeah. in 3D? But the point is, uh, on images when printed in a book, <laughs> it looks as if, because they've cut off the bottom half, it looks as if it's m- resembling a sort of hat because of this thick brim. Mm. which is a brim of cosmic dust. So it almost does look, mm. in that sense, as part of a hat. But it's not a hat I'd like to wear, because this hat is huge. It's about <laughs> 100,000 light years across. So from here to there, from the left-hand extremity to the right-hand extremity, would take light 100,000 years to travel across. Um so, you know, you, I, I don't believe you'd like to have a head which is a hundred thousand light years big. Um, maybe we need such heads, um, because people are telling me that certain pools act as fire, um, and <laughs> please, so, please, professor. So let's not go down that line, <laughs> but uh, we wish our president very well to be serious. <laughs> but the point is, Duncan, is that that really does show you how large in a sense, this cosmic hat really is. And I think that that's just incredible. Now, remember, this image was not captured from the Earth, from a telescope on Earth, but it's part of, a, uh, you know, the I have a dream process, I have a desire process. NASA had this desire to launch the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, launched in 1990 and 25 years old now, and we're looking today at the uh, top 10 Ten images, but it really is amazing to me in conclusion that these images cause one to look up. And as Duncan has said, if he had to see these, you know, painted on his bedroom wall or posted, uh, you know, or you prestic and you then you know prestic them onto your wall, uh, I'd like to encourage you as listeners to do that because they make me look up. I've had this eye up and I can really say they make me look up with grandeur, with purpose and with awe. Until next week, bye. Let's play out with Enya. Cliffcentral.com